I invite you to take a Bible and turn almost to the end of the New Testament to the book of 1 Timothy. You come to Thessalonians and then Timothy and Titus, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Our uh, book of church order recommends that a sermon be preached when officers are nominated or elected. Since we elect them in November, I wanted to uh, bring a, a, a sermon on the qualifications for church leadership and how applicable that is to all of us. So chosen First Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 1 and following. <clears throat> Let me give you the context of this. The Apostle Paul and had uh, helped plant a lot of churches around the uh, Mediterranean. And uh, years later, he, he and Timothy would go back to visit some of these. And the church at Ephesus had been infiltrated uh, with false teaching. So he left Timothy, his main partner in ministry, his younger protege, to pastor the church. Now it's sometime later, and uh, Paul is writing to Timothy. That's why we call this a pastoral epistle, because Timothy was a pastor in that urban center of Ephesus. And he's given him some instruction on uh, basically a, a handbook for the local church. And in this section, he comes to the, uh, the offices that God has ordained of uh, overseers or elders and deacons. And beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above pre- reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the, uh, the church. It's your vehicle to carry out the Great Commission. It's your institution that you have set up. We pray you give us clarity and that you might mold First Presbyterian Church continually more and more toward who you want us to be, that you'd make us effective in making disciples here in Macon and around the world. pray you'd use this sermon toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, in fact, we looked at the ascension of Christ there in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus was raised up from the uh, side of his disciples and ascended to be with the Father. 
And I mentioned at that time that we all are ambassadors for Christ. If we are followers of Christ, then the Bible says we are his ambassadors. So the question is not whether we are his ambassadors. The question is how effective we are in our witness for him as his ambassadors. Uh, many of us probably feel that we're not that effective. And I'm, I said, my opinion was, often I think that goes back to our lack of training, that maybe our training did not prepare us to do that. Well, part of the way God trains us is in the local church with shepherds, with spiritual shepherds, with overseers, and with deacons in the local church. And so the New Testament places strong emphasis on the, on the importance of appointing godly officers in the church. It may surprise you, as it surprised me a year or two ago, to find out that the New Testament offers more instruction regarding elders and deacons than on any other important church subject, including the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Day, baptism, or spiritual gifts. You will find more instruction about elders and deacons than those other very important subjects. Now, one of the most important tasks in the church is the selection of elders and deacons, the, what we call the two church officers. So let's look at this passage. It's very familiar with some of you. It gives the qualifications. Uh, let me begin with a couple of observations from the text itself. First, and that, and that is spiritual leadership is something to aspire to. It is a good thing to aspire to. In God's church, he will put on the hearts of certain men an aspiration to be shepherds, to be leaders, and that's a good thing. To aspire to something means to long for it or, or to desire it. So in one sense, the office of elder or deacon seeks the man, but at the same time, the man seeks the office. So there'll be a desire on the part of the person, but it's not a desire for prestige or necessarily a desire for personal influence. <clears throat> it's not a desire for position. It's a desire for shepherding. Martin Lloyd-Jones said anyone called to ministry will be pulled from two directions, two opposite directions. One will be the feeling of great inadequacy. Who is adequate for such things? But the other side is the need is so great I cannot ignore it. So these two tensions will pull at a person who aspires to the office in the church. The second observation, I think, from this text is spiritual leadership, spiritual shepherding is a noble task. In the early church, to be a leader in the church, uh, to be a Christian, but also to be a leader, may involve great sacrifice. It could involve physical persecution. It probably for sure involved false accusations that would be brought against the person. So Paul here is commending those who serve in the church. He says it's an honorable work. It is a fine work. Younger men, especially, aspire to the work of elder or deacon. Now the word elder means overseer. It can mean and can refer to pastor, church leader, or elder. And so the word in this passage is the same as the word for minister or pastor or presbyter. Well, let's look at the qualifications. Pardon me. I'm having a little throat trouble the past month or so, so I have to drink a lot of water. Let's look at these beginning in verse 2. Now the overseer must be above reproach. Literally blameless. He has a clean record. These are qualifications. This is what you want to look for as you take this. 
As you take this, you want to give prayerful consideration to this, this and other passages for these qualifications. It doesn't mean that the person is perfect, of course not. It doesn't mean that the, the man is faultless, for that would eliminate all of us. But he's free from scandal. He's free from disgrace. It's what others in the church see and observe. It's not necessarily how the man sees himself. He may be too hard on himself. He will be more aware of his own sin. He may be too critical, but it's how others see him. And that has bearing on the person being considered. So obviously, this person is not leading a a life of hypocrisy, of, of double standard. Now it goes into some of the particulars about how he's blameless or above reproach. First, it mentions the family, and it mentions first his marriage. He says he's the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. There are few phrases in the New Testament that have been so controversial as this phrase. Does this mean a man must be married in order to be a church leader, to be an elder? What about a person who is a widower or someone who has a divorce in their past or a bachelor who's never been married? I mean, does does being the husband of one wife preclude all of those? It's very unlikely that Paul meant that all church leaders must be married. Paul was not married when he wrote this. We find the same qualifications in Titus, and Titus was a church leader. He was not married. So the literal translation helps us. It means he is a one-woman man, a one-woman man. He's above reproach in his marital life. He's faithful to his wife. It doesn't mean he has a perfect marriage, but his marriage is worth imitating. There's no question about this man's faithfulness to one woman, and that is his wife. He's not flirtatious toward others. He doesn't have wandering eyes. He guards his mouth. He guards his thoughts. guards his speech. He exhibits Christ-like love toward his wife. So if someone said, well, it should be such that if someone said, you know, I don't know if that guy really loves his wife. I don't know if he's really faithful to her. Then the common consensus would be, (laughs) that guy, there's no question. He is committed to his wife. It also says that he's to be temperate. He does not act, you wouldn't call him an irrational man or an impulsive man. Or he has uncontrollable habits that seem to dictate his actions. He's not given to wild extremes. It says he's self-controlled. He controls himself. He, He wouldn't be a person who's given to losing his temper regularly. He's respectable. Uh, he, he has an inner quality that's, that's demonstrated on the outside. And then it says he's hospitable. Literally, it means that it says it's a lover. He's a lover of strangers. His home is open to strangers. He uses his home or his apartment or whatever to minister to others. Now, I realize this part has textual, contextual, historical basis. Yes, it's true back in New Testament times. There, you couldn't go to the day's end down there, you know, at the corner of Jerusalem and whatever and check in. There weren't modern hotels like we have today, and so there was a great need. Often the ends of the day were places of ill repute. And yet we see stress throughout the New Testament, especially the need to practice hospitality. Romans 12 says, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 1 Peter 4, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So when it says in Romans to practice, that means to pursue. 
to initiate. This is true for all Christians. Romans is not speaking of officers. It's speaking of all believers. We are to initiate hospitality. We don't wait then for it to happen to us. So our lives and our homes need to be open. Some of you here have had people live with you for many months. I don't know how you've done it. Uh, Some are really strong in that area. They're able to to do that. Uh, But all of us can have someone in for a meal. All of us can share bread together. And I think often we don't do that. It's not practice because we don't understand the impact of it. We don't understand how critical such a time like that can be. It sounds so simple. And the other thing is many of us probably didn't grow up in houses where that was practiced in a natural, less formal way. Barbara and I every year probably have hundreds of people into our house. And usually for Sunday lunch and sometimes on a weeknight for dinner. And we especially try to have visitors to the church and newcomers to the church. And it's not because we have a house to show off. It's not because we're trying to impress anybody with the serving of the food. It's because both she and I, before we were married, were greatly impacted by Christian workers when we were in college over meals. Being invited to the navigator representative's wife at their, their house, he and his wife, after church on a Sunday. Me being on a campus crusade for Christ summer beach project. And, and every Sunday there was a, a poor family in Panama City Beach where I was for the summer that would have 15 to 20 of us to their house. And we would eat, but mainly we would sit around the table and talk. We would just talk. And so we need to practice hospitality. You say, well, I can't cook. Fine, partner with someone who can cook and maybe you can talk. Some people like to cook and they don't like to talk. You do the talking and let them do the cooking. Or maybe you say, I like to do the talking. Okay, you find someone else to do the cooking. And you all partner together. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up, what I'm getting ready to tell you. When we, before we moved here, we were at a church in northwest Arkansas. It was a church plant. And part of the core group of that church plant was a man and his wife. His name was Rick Hursley. Rick uh, came to our church because he wanted a PCA church. He had been in a Bible church called Fellowship Bible Church in Springdale, Arkansas. I never met the pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in the four years we lived there. I never visited the church but I heard great things about it. I heard what a community atmosphere there was, of how outreaching there was. And one day I, got a, uh, I found out why that was true. Rick and I were talking, and he said, you know, my wife and I, when we moved here, he was a professor at the University of Arkansas. We visited Fellowship Bible Church, and the first Sunday we were there, we had 13 invitations to lunch. Now, folks... This is not complicated. Outreach, we make it complicated in the church by saying, let's put some program together, let's advertise it, let's spend thousands of dollars on advertising, let's do this, and let's hope that someone comes. If a local congregation, if even 25% of us 
practiced hospitality, looked for strangers and people and said, look, come on into our house to eat, visit with us for the afternoon or for an hour or two, or, or give them a time. Say, at 2.30, I'm asking everybody to leave. I'm no prophet, but you would see growing churches like we've never seen before, not in a long time. So this should be especially true in the life of a person to serve as a church officer. Why? Because we model it. We tend to do what we see others do, and that communicates this is the normal Christian life. It goes on, and this is true, some of the, I'm sorry, I forgot to explain. The list for elders and deacons, with the exception of two, are almost identical. So I'm dealing with these together, but here's one that's particularly for elders, and that is able to teach. He demonstrates the ability and the willingness to teach. Therefore, we must have a knowledge of God's word. Teaching is foundational in ministry. Good leaders teach. Great teachers lead. And so that demands that this this man be a student of the Bible. It doesn't mean he has to have a Ph.D. in it, but he must have a working knowledge of the Bible or should be advancing in that. I think any believer, we ought to be lifelong students of the Bible. This shouldn't be a question. We should always be learning, but especially these men. He needs to know how to study it. He needs to know how to interpret it how to make legitimate applications to life. He knows how to give an answer for the hope that is within him. He's not given to much wine. This is true for both elder and deacon. He cannot be a drunkard. He exercises self-control concerning drinking alcohol. He's not violent, but gentle. He controls his temper. He doesn't threaten. He's not always trying to pick fights. And along with this, it says he's not quarrelsome. He's a peacemaker. He's not a lover of money. This is true for both elder deacons. They display a grace of contentment. There's not a question as to whether their actions are motivated by financial gain. They're probably very generous in their giving. They practice good stewardship. They're not overburdened with debt. Not a covetous man. He must manage his own family well. The aspiring overseer will be a loving leader in the home. And through that, we'll give direction and order and stability. If there are children, small children in the home, the New Testament is clear. When it's talking about children, it uses a word, a Greek word called techna. Usually then, that would have been under 12 years of age. If there are children in the home, they will clearly be under his authority. Because children typically reflect the disposition of their fathers. That's scary, isn't it? Scary for some of us. So he demonstrates a commitment to raise him in the fear and nurture of the Lord. In fact, it goes on and says, if he doesn't, if any, verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? The Puritans said it right. If a man cannot pastor the little church, he can't pastor the big church, meaning the family. They call the family the little church. I think often those of us that are parents that, that don't discipline or train our children, often we're just tired or we're lazy, Right? Don't answer that, everybody. Well, I think that's right. And the point is, if I'm lazy in that arena in my family, I'll be lazy with it in the church. If I don't care about my own kids enough to go to them and say, hey, I'm concerned about you, I want to point something out to you, I want to help you with this, then why would I do that with people that aren't in my own flesh and blood? He must not be a recent convert. He may have, you may say that person, even when they've only been converted for a few weeks, say that person, I see that person being a shepherding, a shepherd. But they're not there yet. 
Give the person time to mature. That's what Paul's saying. How much time? My opinion is three to five years. You know, let them get on their feet before you put them in an area of responsibility that may lead to their own temptation. Must have a good reputation with outsiders, even those outside the church, even those that may think we're fools for what we believe. They don't question the integrity of our lives. Verse 11, they have wives worthy of respect. The wife is never a neutral factor. Okay, you can't just think about the man, you have to think also about his wife. There's a lot to cover here. This could be a whole series of sermons. A few observations. Almost all of what is required here of elders is required of any and all believers. For example, the qualification not to be a drunkard does not imply that other believers can be binge drinkers all the time. The fact that an elder must not be a lover of money does not suggest that, well, I don't want to be a, a lover of money, therefore I can make, I mean, uh, an elder, I can make money my God. <laughs> no. It's that these qualities are especially required of shepherds in the church. That's what it means. They're true for all of us, but especially of these. Our position in the PCA, in my position, as a PCA elder, is that these qualifications can only be met by men. So we believe only men should serve in the offices of elder and deacon. The Bible is clear, even by the language and the vocabulary, of when it's using a term for mankind, speaking of all people, and when it's speaking of men, specifically men. Here it's talking about men. To the women, your positive response to this instruction helps the church to maintain its distinctives, that we're not to duplicate the world's standards. We don't rush out to find out what, what's the world telling us to do, therefore let's go back and make the church look the same. So our reason for this is not that men are smarter or more spiritual or more gifted or more insightful. It's that the qualifications are for men. And so we think the church accomplishes what God wants us to accomplish when we do it God's way. Another observation is our lives are to be incarnational demonstrations of the gospel. What we need in spiritual shepherds is just to demonstrate what it means to be a growing Christian who's walking in God's grace each day. That I've come to believe in Christ as my Redeemer, that I've understood the bad news and the good news, the bad news of my sin, that it deserves God's punishment, that he sent Christ to be a Redeemer, that he, the great shepherd, then went and was crucified on my behalf. He took my sin, the punishment for my sin upon him. He was raised from the dead. I trust in that. I believe in that. I believe that's the only way I'm made right with God. I experience his grace of salvation, and then I draw upon that grace every day that now he's my heavenly father. I'm his child. I seek to walk with him. And as I experience that, I can show that to others. So Christ is the great shepherd. We live in his grace as shepherds in his flock. We live in his grace. I receive that grace, and then I'm in a position to show that grace to others and to lead others and to try and influence others with the grace that I receive from Christ. I spent about two hours yesterday thinking of a conclusion for this sermon. I knew it was Memorial Day weekend, and I was thinking about the last verse that I read, which is those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ. And I was thinking about 
people who have served as heroes of our country. And I was rereading a story that I have told you a few times in the many years I've been here. Some of you might remember it was about a pilot who sacrificed his life with a young man in a ball turret in a damaged B-17 flying back over things. Anybody remember that? Raise your hand. Okay, I want to speak specifically to you. I try to be very careful with illustrations to make sure that they're accurate. And I try never to violate confidences by telling something in front of people that I don't have permission from someone to say. So I said, I'm going to go back. <clears throat> I had heard that told that it was from Reader's Digest. I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to find out the guy's name. I'm going to find out exactly when it happened, and I'm going to find out the issue. Well, guess what I found out? Never happened. There was no Congressional Medal of Honor ever awarded for a pilot for an action like that. And I found out that it came from one of our past presidents who loved to tell it, but it came out of a movie called Wing and a Prayer with Dana Andrews, <laughs> black and white. I, I'm apologizing, y'all. I'm sorry. I need God's grace. I'll try and be more accurate in the future. But that's what being a shepherd is, right? We live by God's grace. Each day, even preachers that tell things that are supposed to be true and then find out they aren't. So God has put elders in the church. Here's my summary. I wrote this down. The local church is a group of sinners saved by grace who individually and collectively are becoming conformed to the image of Christ in their beliefs and actions. The church officers are appointed by the Lord to serve as examples of men experiencing the life-transforming power of the gospel. The result will be encouragement to God's people and refutation of the opponents of the truth. We're going to close with Isaac Watts' paraphrase of Psalm 23. It's a wonderful hymn, like a wonderful psalm, about God being our shepherd. So he has appointed shepherds as his under-shepherds in the local church. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll sing together that printed on the back of the worship folder. Father, thank you for you being the great shepherd, that Christ came and laid down his life for his sheep. Thank you for your grace and mercy, that even in our sin, even our public sin, that is more than abundant to cover that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together these three stanzas of my shepherd will supply my need.
your hand inside of all my foes does still my table spread my cup with blessings overflows your oil anoints my head the sure provisions of my God attend me Receive this benediction from the end of the book of Hebrews. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in you what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.